Join the conversation with Tommy Weber. Pro and college baseball coach Tommy Weber brings you cutting-edge interviews and thought-provoking commentary in a weekly podcast dedicated to baseball, sports, current events, and the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and TommyWeberBaseball.com. And make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TommyWeberBaseball. It's time to get the conversation started, so here's your host, Tommy Weber. You bet. That is the voice of Jonathan Gordon doing a great job on that intro. I am Tommy Weber. Welcome to the conversation on a rainy, kind of cool Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to everyone out there. We have a great show. We have uh, my guest host today is someone who has been on the podcast before. That is author and baseball coach Andy Santella. Of course, his book is Soon, an overdue history of procrastination. From Leonardo and Darwin to you and me, it is available on andrewsantella.com, Amazon, and anywhere else. Great books are sold. It is a great read. Uh, it teaches us who procrastinates, why, and why, perhaps, procrastinating is not the worst thing in the world. Andy, how are you, my friend? Great to be here, Tommy, and happy Mother's Day, everybody. Great, great. Um, Andy, of course, coaches at Millennium High School with my buddy Brian Friedman, uh, and he uh, confronts a lot of the same issues that many people in the Northeast who uh, are either dumb enough or in love enough with baseball uh, have to confront when they coach baseball teams, whether it be in high school or in college. Uh, you have to fight Mother Nature and a lot of other issues that a lot of schools throughout the country do not have to. Uh, today, my guest, uh, he's been on the show before. Um, but today we don't have John Schiffner to rob us all of the time. So uh, <laughs> actually going to be some room for the rest of us to speak. Uh, the uh, head coach at Keystone College. Now, when I give you Jamie Shevchik's uh, curriculum vitae, uh, it is one that is really daunting and impressive. And my friend has uh, ostensibly created a Division Three empire in La Plume, Pennsylvania. Uh, he also has to deal with all of the issues that a small Division Three school has to deal with in the Northeast um, at the Division Three level trying to recruit players. He is uh, a 14-time or 13-time coach of the year. Uh, he has now uh, 10 consecutive CSAC championships, 14 straight conference championships. He's been to two College World Series. They were the runner-up in 2016. He yesterday, I believe, clinched uh, another berth in the regional. Uh, he just keeps getting it done year after year. Of course, you've heard me say a million times on this show, uh, he was at the helm uh, of one of the epic record-setting teams in the history of the Cape Cod League, which is the best league in the world, as we won a championship last season, um, summiting, uh, coming from behind, and uh, facing elimination five times, and uh, with the Brewster Whitecaps, uh, welcome to the show, Jamie Shevchik. Hey, great to be here, Bobby. Thank you. And uh, before I before I go on, I, I I usually sometimes do a rant, but I'll do my little rant um, uh, now that Jamie's already in. There there are some realities that we, we need to understand about the climate and 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 the uh, the atmosphere of coaching in America at different levels, whether that be Division One, Division Two, or Division Three. 
what Jamie does, and, I, and I'm on the inside, we spend the summers together and we talk all the time, so I see what Jamie has to do just to get his team on the field, let alone put a representative team on the field, and then be a team that is a nationally recognized prominent team on the field. Um, at the top of the food chain is about 40 schools. Those 40 Division I schools really, in my opinion, and this could offend anybody that it does, are the easiest schools to coach at. Why? They have unlimited resources. There are only a limited amount of elite players, all of whom want to go to one of those 40 schools. Now, none of those schools could take all of those players. So ostensibly, what they're really doing is a form of bid rigging. They're going to get, even if you did no recruiting, if you're the University of Virginia, you're going to get a certain amount of elite players who want to go to the University of Virginia or who Vanderbilt can't take because they've already given their full allotment of scholarships to someone else. So recruiting, getting teams on the field, practicing, and getting it done is far easier when you have unlimited resources. It's not a knock on any of the coaches, but it would be very difficult to argue that it's, as e it's harder to coach at the top when you have all the money, all the resources, and all the bells and whistles as it is when you're on the bottom when you have very few of them and that is no fault of the school that Jamie coaches at. It's a great school. It's a beautiful campus, but it doesn't have the mountainous resources that the big time division one schools have. And for Jamie Shevchik to have amassed this kind of pedigree at this school, I'm going to tell you right now, if you're one of these guys who holds these conventions, this is the guy who should be your keynote speaker. Why? Nobody in the country and if, if somebody did, there are very, it's a very small list of guys who have done more with less than Jamie Shevchek has at Keystone College. Like him, hate him, agree with his strategy, disagree with his strategy. No one can deny that what he has done deserves to be, you know, the Twitter sphere should be ablaze with praise for my friend Jamie Shevchek. So, Shev, um, my hat. I tip my hat to you because I know I couldn't do what you do. I wouldn't do what you do. And I, I have just an immeasurable amount of respect and admiration for what you've sacrificed to get to where you are today. And I, I had to say that to you. Well, I really appreciate that. And I, and I think you said it, you said it best. Um, doing, you know, a lot more with a lot less is something that I've just been used to doing for a long time. Um, uh, we don't have all the resources. And, you know, you talk about, you know, the cathedrals, even the, the facilities and the ballparks that these guys are playing in, in Division One baseball. That's that's starting to make its way down to Division Two and even Division Three. I mean, we played in some facilities this year, Division Three facilities that um, we just will never have, no matter how hard we try or how, you know, how many games we win or how many national championships we win. And again, like you said, it's no fault to the school. Keystone College is a great it's place. It's a great place. We get... We, we get a lot of support. It's just, um, you know, we're a small division three school in Northeastern Pennsylvania and, um, we've got very limited resources. So it, uh, it is tough, but I've been blessed with great players and even better assistant coaches that, uh, deserve a lot of the credit of any success Keystone's had over the years. I'm glad you mentioned that because obviously I, I, I know, uh, uh, you know, Austin and, and Smythe, uh, who, who have, I mean, are incredibly dedicated in, and, and dedicated more. So, I mean, we see all the coaches. Don't, don't forget. I mean, it's a small world. Every, and, you know, the baseball, especially the college baseball world, is a really small community. We see all of these guys. 
how do you account for getting guys to come to Keystone and do so much? I mean, your guys, Smythe, Straub, all those guys are so dedicated. I mean, sometimes I look at look at them and I say, "Wow." I mean, I don't know that I could do that. And I and again, I admire, you know, how do you get them to buy in and to do so much? Well, I've had to sacrifice. I've had to sacrifice in my in my personal life. I've had to sacrifice financially. Um, I know, you know, in a, a good assistant coach is is the key to, you know, sustaining a winning a winning program. I think it's the it's the key to to staying married. Um, because if if I've got a guy that I can get home at a at a reasonable hour and I can trust having my program run the way it's supposed to run and there's some things that I, cause that's big, you know, family is huge. And the last thing that I want to do is, um, you know, do anything that's going to jeopardize that, but I've had to make some sacrifices in the, the last 15 years. I've had an assistant coach, um, living in my house, um, free room and board because we can only pay him $2,500 a year. And an incentive for that guy would be to live there, you know, have full range of the house for free. You know, so I've had five different assistant coaches over 15 years that I've lived in my house. Um, my, my poor wife works as a waitress and she might bring 200 bucks home and $50 of that goes to pay an assistant coach. Uh, up until two years ago, the highest paid assistant coach I had was 2,500 bucks a year. Um, wow. And it, we're starting to, to, to get the, our coaches to, you know, a little bit more money, which is hopefully going to keep them around. But I give them a lot of credit and I owe them the world of all the success we've had. Well, it's, it's, uh, it speaks a lot to, to the quality of person that you are, that you can get people to do that um, on your behalf and in the interest of a program, because we both know that those guys are few and far between. And you're right. They're the backbone of any program. And it's interesting how you're able, you understand it's like one Really, your program is is your program, your kids, your wife, your house, your truck, your cars. It really is all one gigantic program. There's no delineating. You know, you don't have the luxury to be the head coach at Vanderbilt who once he leaves that ballpark, he leaves the program behind and goes to his home. You just don't you don't have that. And it's it's really testament to you that you are willing to make that sacrifice and make it kind of a whole holistic vibe, if you will. Absolutely. And I think one of the biggest benefits, um, you know, to an assistant coach who doesn't make a whole lot of money is giving them the opportunity like Straub and Smythe, you know, the opportunity to coach in the greatest amateur baseball league on the planet. And that's the Cape Cod League. And, you know, they really enjoy that. Um, It's a reward for them. And it's something that, you know, it's a bargaining chip for me now. I think, you know, I've put in my time to, to get to Brewster and get to the Cape. And um and I piggyback my jobs here at Keystone with the opportunity to coach in one of the best worlds and or the best leagues in the country. So I think that's an incentive that I have to parlay into to getting a good guy. Right, you're leveraging that that fabulous, unprecedented opportunity that most coaches would you know kill for, uh, to, especially young guys to get that on their resume. It's it looks fabulous and it is fabulous. I mean, it is the best league on the planet. So um, it's interesting how you understand how to leverage your assets. I, I just I just think it's a great story. And I think it's it's a story that uh, has gone untold. And that's why I do believe uh, that you should be one of these guys uh, at these conventions telling this story rather than some 27 year old who's doing a PowerPoint presentation on how to catch a fly ball better, you know, because he's got like the bad facial hair and 
coaches at some obscure school in the, you know, in the Northwest. I, I'm sure I look, it's funny, but it's true. I mean, come on, really? Uh, okay. You, you know, he's got the chart and the PowerPoint. He's teaching you how to drop step. Oh, that's great. And he's all of like 26 years old with four years of experience. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going to play, uh, I'm going to play your, your PR man here tonight as I, as I like to do. And, uh, uh, prevail upon everyone who's out there who's booking people for next year this should be the guy that is on your uh, on your agenda yeah. um you know, you know i think I, I think one of the biggest mistakes and i'm not gonna even say it was a mistake because if i if i can go back and and change anything i probably wouldn't change anything but you know one of the issues that i've had is i mean you know how it is at the division one level it's the boys club and it's yep. the revolving door of yep. job to job yep. and um, you know, I was offered a full-time coaching job at Keystone College, my alma mater when it was a junior college, at the age of 25. I mean, who's going to turn that down at you 25? Can't. You can't. But what hurt me, I think, at the time was it never gave me the opportunity to get out in the real world, to get out in the world and be that volunteer when I was young and single and, and I can afford to, you know, live alone. And, but So I think that might have hurt me, but it... it if I can go back, I would never change anything. I, I love where I'm at, and I love being in the in the Cape. Obviously, that's great. That's great, Andy. Yeah, yeah I was listening to you two talk just now. It it, it reminds me that I and tell me tell me if I'm wrong, and because I probably am. But it, it reminds me. It's I, I, I think I think you know, coaching is like an iceberg. You know, it's like ten percent of it is visible. Everyone thinks that to be being a coach means. Yeah. managing a game or right. maybe running right. a practice, but there's the other 90% is for figuring out a budget and marshalling your resources. And can I take a bus to this game? Can I do this? How am I going to get to this game? Can I pay this guy? Um, and, and relating to your players and managing relationships with your players and your uh, staff and, uh, you know, running the game is, it would seem to me a pretty minuscule part of the, of the job. If the most visible, I, I, I'll, I'll let Chev, after I, I tell you, let me, let me just say this. My observation of working with Chev for two years in the dugout is the job doesn't end. This is not pro ball where you have a real general manager who actually, you know, takes care of everything for you. And the club is set up so that the manager deals with as little as possible so that the manager only deals with managing the team. That's the way the structure is set up in amateur baseball and especially at the division three level. It's, unless you're at some really elite division one school, you are chief cook and bottle washer and it never ends. So when you're in the dugout, when you're finally in the dugout, and you're making out the lineup card. If you hear about your second baseman who got caught drinking last night and that's why he's not there, you have to deal with it right then and there. It's not like somebody is in charge of that or somebody's taking that responsibility from you and running with it. And if you don't deal with it, then you're dealing with it after the game. So it's on your mind during the game. The stress is incredible unless you're at one of very, very few uh, select elite schools. Chev? Yeah, you're 100% right. I know one of the biggest questions that a lot of people ask me, anybody who watches me manage or watches me in a dugout, they say, you know, no matter what the situation is, how big, um, how, how small the situation is, you stay even keel. You're, <laughs> you're never too high. You're never too low. Yeah. How do you stay so relaxed throughout the course of the game? Let them do an and to me, those nine innings that we play are the calmest part of, right. of my life. That's right. Um, I'm a full, I'm a full-time father to 40 baseball players. I'm a full-time fundraiser. And really, I'm a part-time manager and a part-time coach. There's so many other aspects in, 
in Division Three baseball on the amateur side um, that go on that people just don't realize. A lot of people say to me, you know, you coach baseball in the spring. What the hell do you do for the rest of the year? <laughs> yeah. And I just and I don't know what the hell to tell them. Well, that's because Andy makes a great point. It is the iceberg. You only see the tip of it. All you see is the results of all the labor because that's the only thing anybody sees when they come to a game. They see you in your uniform and you look nice and neat and you go and hand out the lineup card and you talk to the umpires and you walk back in the dugout. Wow, this seems like a lark. People can't, if, if people knew what you had to do to keep that Keystone ship moving, I, I, I don't know that people would really believe it. I think that's why I think it's such a great story because it has to be true because nobody could possibly imagine what you do at Keystone, you, your coaches, your wife, everybody chips in. And at, you know, let's face it, you're, you're not getting rich there. You know, if, if you, if you put that, if you put that much time into bartending, you'd make 10 times the amount of money that you make. You'd be the richest bartender in the world, for God's sake. There's a lot of things that I can be doing that I can make a hell of a lot more money in, but, uh, yeah, like mowing lawns, anything. <laughs> So, you know, what, what I wanted to ask you uh, when I, I thought of this when I was coming in and and it, the question's based on this idea that, you know, I think most of us assume any given player, you know, you see him as a freshman and he shows some signs. You're going to assume that as a sophomore, he's going to be better and as a junior, even better than that. And maybe by the time he's a senior, he'll be re really, really something. Um, but I think a lot of people don't think of coaches that way as improving, you know, getting better at their jobs. And I, I think the good ones certainly do get better at their jobs. So I wanted to ask you how you've changed. If you can think of some ways that you coach differently now than you did when you started, however many years Great ago, question. whether it's, whether it's in terms of game management, whether it's in terms of your relationship with your players, anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think, when, you know, when I was 25 years old, it was, number one, it was all about me. Um, it was, I micromanaged, I think, my assistant coaches, and I wanted everything done a certain way. Um, I didn't trust a lot of people. Um, I wasn't even sure I wanted to do this at a, for a, as a career at the time. Um, but I think, you know, once I fell in love with it, I learned over the years to, um, I learned how to delegate. I learned how to give other people responsibilities. Um, I learned that at the end of the day, when you lose and, you know, I had a family, um, it's not that big of a deal to lose because I get to come home to, you know, to, to my girls and my wife and there's another day in baseball. So I've learned a ton as far as the, the X's and O's I'm still learning every day. You know, I think, you know, spending the summer over the last, um, two years in the dugout with, uh, with Tommy, um, you know, we, I've bounced so many things off him uh, in our conversations that I've probably learned a lot more in the last two years um, than I have in the past 10 about uh, uh, managing styles and allowing the kids to play. And because, you know, I probably was the guy that, you know, a long time ago that Tommy and I talk about that, that people despise. So yeah, I never want to, I never want to stop learning. You know, I, I want to continue to get better because the competition is getting better. And, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on you. And, you know, this, I don't mean this to sound arrogant or cocky, but when you win 14 titles in a row, you know, part of me, you know, this, there was a time last year in 2017 where we're playing in a conference championship game, winner take all, and we're losing in the seventh inning. And part of me felt a relief come over me that we're <laughs> sure. going to lose the pressure's off and I get to start 
and go back to being normal and start all over again. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, best player in the league drops a fly ball. We win the damn championship. We go on to, you know, we go on to the regionals again and the pressure starts all over. And I think that's something that I carry with me every single year. Part of me wants to lose and start all over again, but the competitive side of me wants to keep learning and sure shit, keep winning. You know, um, I think one of the reasons why you've been so successful is your ability to even make that statement because most guys aren't secure enough in themselves. And we talk about the hyper macho uh, atmosphere that exists in baseball, uh, especially amateur baseball today. Uh, There are very few guys that are willing to be vulnerable. And to say something like that, makes you vulnerable. And I, I really have to say, I think that's one of the keys to, to your success is that uh, you're approachable and you um, your players can identify with the fact that you're feeling things that they feel. I think when you start to, and I'm sure when we were young, you know, when we were younger, you wanted to uh, project to your players an air of invincibility because that's what you do when you're young because you do think you're invincible. But as you get older and you get more experience, uh, I think you tend to trust more because you realize you can't engineer the outcome. You stop, you stop thinking it's all about you and that you could fix everything. And then you realize, you know what? It really is up to my players. If my players don't do it, there's nothing that I could do. And I think that enables you, if you want to, if you want to, to be vulnerable and really get close to your guys and to really get an awful lot more out of the experience than just being on the field in uniform and dugout and hitting fungos. Oh, hundred percent, hundred. But you know, something that the message that we get out to our players every single year, from the beginning through the middle, and at the end is, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do with our players is when when their baseball careers are over, you know, we want those kids to be good mentors, good ambassadors of Keystone College, good husbands, good fathers, and good good people in the community. And if we can teach that throughout the course of the year, the more that we stay on that, you know, I think a lot of that stuff translates into the commitment of baseball, you know, growing up and taking responsibility for, for your actions is, is ultimately going to, going to play itself out on a baseball field. You listen to the conversation, check us out on Spotify, iTunes, and on TommyWeberBaseball.com. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with the boss, not Springsteen, Shevchik, uh, <laughs> right after this. You're listening to The Conversation with Tommy Weber. We'll be right back. This episode of The Conversation with Tommy Weber is brought to you by 4momalz.com. Join the fight against Alzheimer's and support our good friends, Hunter and Braden Bishop, as they bring awareness to a struggle that many families face through their charity, 4mom. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at hashtag 4mom. And for all your mortgage needs, call Northern Security Capital Corp., the New York area's most dedicated mortgage broker. If you're buying or refinancing a home, there's only one place to go. Call Northern Security Capital Corp. today at 718-273-1010. And now, back to the show. We are back with Jamie Shipchick, Andy Santella. His book is soon. You got to get that book. It is really great. It's a great read. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, can I ask, no. you, you were looking at me when you decided to play tiny dancer. Is there <laughs> oh, man. just a coincidence wow. or wow. <laughs> should I take that personally? I am, I, you know, I'm not even going to go there okay. because okay. knowing me, I can only get into tons of trouble right. and I, I've already had one guy, one shut in Facebook me and make a bad comment about the show. I don't know. I mean, people really have to get a life, but, 
Uh, it's all in good time. You know, it's all, it's all in good fun. And if you don't like what you say, don't listen. Okay. Vote with the clicker, as they say. Um, so Chev, let me ask you a question. Uh, you have always had a, a disproportionate amount of Latin American guys on your wall club. Um, you have, <laughs> yeah. you have had a pipeline to, you know, a lot of them have played, they played for me when I ran the Staten Island Tide and, um, um, you've had kind of a pipeline to, uh, of all places, Keystone in, in rural Pennsylvania. Talk to us about that. We were, uh, we were a junior college. Um, you know, when I first got the job at Keystone in whatever it was, 2000, 2001, um, we were a junior college and I was out recruiting, um, at a private school. And, um, I went out to see, uh, you know, a, a shortstop and at the private school, there was a Latin American pitcher. And, um, he was a senior. He's only there for one year, not being recruited by anybody, had a conversation with him, had a conversation with the coach, um, ended up coming to Keystone, had four great years at Keystone. And then, and he was from Puerto Rico. And then all of a sudden, you know, I get a phone call from a scout in Philadelphia who knows this kid and says, I have a kid that we just drafted in, uh, in Puerto Rico and he's an outfielder and he's looking for a place in a four-year school up North. Are you interested? Uh, the very next day, my wife and I were on a plane to Puerto Rico. Wow. Um, she spent uh, five days on the beach, and I went out and saw this kid play. I've never been there before. I had no I had a tour guide. And um, I went to the baseball field and, and had a, a chance to watch this kid, and he was really good. Brought a couple of his friends, and I watched those kids. Went back the next day. There was five more kids, and then 10 kids, and then 15 kids. And I wound up recruiting and getting um, you know, six kids from Puerto Rico. Um, it was when we were making that transition from a two-year school to a four-year school, those kids that had the option, they could have stayed and played at Keystone for the rest of their career, or they could have transferred out. So I didn't want to get into the rebuilding phase. I needed to do something that a lot of other schools were not doing. And, um, when I, when I got to the Island and started talking to a lot of people, I couldn't believe the abundance of talent in Puerto Rico and those poor kids, they didn't care if they were going to the university of Miami they weren't good care if they were going to um, Staten Island. They don't care if they were going to Keystone College. They just wanted an opportunity. Um, so that's where it started. And since then, those kids have felt very comfortable with me and our program. And it started a pipeline of Latin kids um, coming to Keystone from now all over the country. And I think the one big thing that I get all the time, and this is something that me and my coaches, you know, we've now become the school who recruits Latin American kids, which I don't get. Um, a high school coach will come up to me and he'll say, Hey, Chev, I've got, uh, I've got, a, uh, you know, I've got a couple good players. Um, but I've got the perfect guy for you. Not that he's a good shortstop or he's a good pitcher. <laughs> he speaks We've got this kid that, you know, who's in high school with us from Puerto Rico. He's the perfect guy for you. I'll go up to a high school coach. What do you got? Nothing for you, but, uh, I do have this catcher who's Dominican, um, you know, that'll be perfect for you guys. So that's where it's become. We are now known as, you know, the good, we might be, we must be the only school in America that recruits Latin American players. Well, I, I must say it's better than being known as the school that recruits fat white kids. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, <laughs> if you have to be known for something, you know, I, I, the Latin kid, I'd like to be known as a school that takes the Latin kid because they can play, they love to play. And I have a question for you. And, and this is a real question that we deal with all the time. And I, and, I, and you know, I don't care whose feathers it ruffles. What's the difference between the white American kid, which is the kid that is playing baseball predominantly because we've lost, we've alienated the black kid because 
it just, you know, financially, baseball is becoming a game that if you're not uh, in the 1%, you almost can't play. Uh, we've ruined it for those kids. Uh, what's the difference between that kid uh, and the Latin kid? Yeah, the biggest difference to me is, you know, and we've had all kind of kids. I mean, it's, it's not like we've got 45 Latin kids on our team. I no, I know. Got, I pride myself on being as diverse as possible. And, um, but what is, you know, what's been the biggest issue for me is, um, I say this all the time. If you gave me the opportunity, you know, what I'm looking for in a recruit, if I had to pick is I want to pick an orphan. I want to recruit orphans, um, who don't have, uh, who don't have parents or whose parents don't give a shit about them because they've got a little bit of an edge to them. They're going to compete and it takes a little bit longer to get those kids to trust you and buy in. But when they do, man, the relationship is, is amazing. And you don't have to deal with all the BS that comes with the entitlement of, uh, of some of, you know, the travel ball and the, and, and those, you know, those type those type of kids. Yeah, I, I, let's face it. Let's face it. Those half those kids that we have can't afford to be on travel ball teams. You know, they 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 have to. They're a lot like me. They've had to struggle and be you know and and find ways to be desperate in success and and they've had to be creative in how they do things. And I think that's why you know we have I have a great relationship with my guys. You know, it, it I, you artfully danced. Uh, you very articulately brought up uh, a point that I I jump all over as as you uh, all well know you know all too well. Uh, but you're right, um, and I would agree wholeheartedly that the difference, the key difference, is uh, parental involvement. That doesn't mean parental concern, care, or love. It means involvement. Uh, and I think the Latin kid is sort of what kids were 50 years ago, whose parents didn't care about baseball, who were probably trying to make ends meet, were working hard, and to the extent their kids were active in something, that's all they cared about. Now what you have is a more affluent parent. It costs money to play the game, so you have to be a more affluent parent, and what that parent does is he invests all his time and energy in his kids' pop time, statistics, whip, war, ERA, and everything else. Uh, So the kid who uh, comes to you from, you know, less than perfect financial means is a kid that appreciates a great deal what you do for him. And I, oh, I, you know, I, I had the, the good fortune to, um, to speak at your dinner, uh, two years ago. Um, and the one thing, I mean, I'm from Brooklyn and I had, you know, I played with all these, I, I love these Latin kids. And when I was at the Staten Island Tide, I was the guy who had the Latin kids in the ACBL. Uh, and I, I, it was so, apparent to me how much they appreciated at that dinner their position you know they were they were getting great gear and somebody was recognizing them and they because i think the modern day player if he's not a travel ball player feels less than because he's not ranked you know if a kid is ranked that kid is seen as better than the latin kid because he's not even in that environment and when he gets to get some validation Man, these kids had high self-esteem. They were beaming, and you could just tell they really appreciated what you were doing for them. Oh, absolutely. You know, we don't have full scholarships to dangle over their heads right. or, or threaten them with, uh, you know, some of the, the entitled kids. Right. I mean, the, recruiting at Division Three. Um, I remember the first year we were in the World Series in 2011, a big banquet with all the teams, and there was – 
there was 18 minorities that were that were showcased or that were a part of the eight teams in the World Series. There was one, you know, African African American team from I think Wisconsin Whitewater, and the other 17 were at Keystone College. And um, it was really neat to see, you know, how we separated ourselves from from the pack, I guess. And um, you know, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of people out there that you know negatively give us that stigma um, that all of a sudden we're doing something wrong. Yeah, well, that's their own ignorance. But I, I think it's great. I think it's great. Andy? One of the guys I work with uh, at Millennium High School speaks, you know, baseball Spanish. And uh, I think the, the, the Dominican kids on our team love that he could banter with them and joke with them in Spanish. And they appreciate that. And I think that that's um, part of the bond they've built. And um I think, I think it's one of the things in sort of the, you know, changing landscape of baseball or whatever you want to say, where managers have to be able to be comfortable with the different kinds of players and players of different backgrounds. And, um, I think some coaches, some managers do it better than others. Uh, being able to relate to people and meet them where they are, it's, it's huge. Yeah, it is. The, appreci- the appreciation from their families. I mean, you get it from the kids, of, of course, but from their families. When my, when my wife and I go to Puerto Rico, I mean, families fight over, you know, who's going to make us dinner and where, where we're going and, and who's going to buy us dinner, who's going to take us out. I mean, that's the type of stuff. I mean, we're we're godparents to our great friends who live in Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rico to their son. I mean, that's a that's a relationship um, and, and friends that we've made for life. Yeah, I used to have kids bringing food to me, like in, in you know in a little bag. I was like, "What is this?" Oh, it's like my mother made you this pie. I've never met your mother. Like, yeah, but you know, I play, and she sees how happy I am. I, oh my god, you know, it could bring a tear to your eye. It's a really wonderful thing to have that kind of impact on a player, and um, I, I think that's part of the reason why you've had so much success. And and speaking of that success, going forward, uh, I know your regional. You don't know where you're going yet. You'll know later tonight. Uh, you begin on Thursday. How does that play out? What's the schedule like? And where do you go from there? Is it from the regional to the World Series? If you win in the regional, you, you automatically go? This is the last year under this format. And the, the way the format is right now, and, and this is, you know, this is a bitch of a tournament. I mean, now you're looking at, there's eight regionals in the country right now, and we're going to be in one of those. eight. And there's in those regionals, there's eight teams. So now you've got to come out of an eight-team double elimination tournament um, to go to the world series Um, next year. It's more like the division one and division two, where you'll have four team regionals and then you'll go to a two team best out of three super regional and then to the world series. But right now um, we'll find out tonight. um, Some where we think we're going to be heading is either going to be York, Pennsylvania, um, Auburn, New York, or I'm hoping for, you know, to get up there maybe a little bit early, uh, Harwich, Massachusetts oh, wow. hosting the New England Regional. Wow. Um, we came out of the New England Regional, which was in Connecticut uh, two years ago when we played in the national championship. So we'll find out tonight where we're headed. Um, but it's going to be, uh, no matter where we go, it's going to be tough. Well, I know I know. earlier on, early in the season, you loved this team. As a matter of fact, last summer you were talking about this team. Uh, and, and they certainly have, uh, they have not disappointed you thus far. We we know all too well anything could happen. Uh, you're gonna need a couple of breaks. You're gonna need a lot of pitching. You need somebody to come up big who probably hasn't come up big yet. Uh, those are the ingredients usually that go into making any kind of run at a championship. But uh, what's your instinct? You know, if I think if the pitching can hold up, 
Um, we've got two really good starters. I mean, we've got two, our top two starters can pitch on any division one team in the country. Am I, and it, I really do believe that they're really good. All right, our number one is 90 to 94 um, who pitched in the Cape last year. And our number two, who's also our DH is also, you know, 90 to 92. And then we've got a handful of guys behind them that can really pitch. Um, if we have a weakness, it's going to be, if we get buried into a loser's bracket early, do we have enough pitching um, to fight our way out. And that's the, that's going to be the question mark. We can really hit, um, you know, defensively, we've been getting a lot better, but I think the depth in the pitching staff, if you get buried into a loser's bracket, um, you know, if we have a demise, that's going to be it. Well, um, we know one thing. Uh, <laughs> it's not for lack of leadership. That's for sure. Um, what do you think about uh, changing gears a little bit, you know, coming off, uh, we're going to be defending a, a championship come this summer. Um, I know, I kind of know the answer to this question, but I'm sure people like to hear you comment on it anyway. What do you think about the roster and the prospects for the summer? Aside from the fact that it's always great because it's the Cape, um, the Brewster Whitecaps, what are you thinking about our club this year? You know, uh, the, the same thing that I thought, I thought the last, you know, the last two years on paper, you know, it, I, I'm really excited to right. be a part of some of the best players in the world. Yep. Unfortunately, you know, everything changes around this time. You know, what our roster was two months ago has dramatically changed already, and it's going to continue to change up until, you know, we report the Cape on June 5th. So really, it depends on, I mean, you're kind of damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. If you recruit the best players in the in the country, you know, you're going to lose some of those kids to Team USA. You're going to lose the pitchers to being shut down because they were so damn good. Um, so you have to recruit a certain style of kid that you don't think is going to go to team USA that you don't think is going to get shut down, but they're still going to emerge as being pretty good. And I think we have a lot of those guys. It's just keeping them healthy over the next couple of weeks and, and getting them to show up on the Cape is going to be the, you know, something that's out of our control. Well, as, as always, you never know whose, whose girlfriend decides that they want them to stay back or he's got to take a class. Uh, and and also the roster turn the roster turnover during the season. I don't think most people understand how uh, you know it's impossible to predict where you're going to be in late July based on where you are in the middle of June because anything can happen. Anything. The worst thing is when you show up at the ballpark and one of your pitchers who's supposed to be throwing a bullpen is sitting in that dugout. You know, you know what's in store. That guy's probably already got a plane ticket and he's ready to go home. He's spoken to his coach or his trainer, and you've just lost like you know your second best pitcher. Yeah. And you know that that's happened to us a, a few times. It certainly has. So, and, you know, and I think why, why D, why Pickler's had so much success in the, in the Cape over the last couple of years um, before he ran into us last year was he's been there for so long and he's got such a great relationship with a lot of the schools on the West coast. And, you know, he's got team a that comes in in the beginning of right. the year. And then he's got team B that's just waiting to come in in July. And, um, and I think we're getting to that point. We have some of those kids on the back burner. Um, but we certainly don't have the, you know, the, the relationships like he did, like he does. I have a question that might be for both of you and uh, about, um, running a team in a place like the Cape. Andy Santella soon is the book and Amazon and all other places. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's good. Uh, wow. That is really good. Um, Do I slip that right in there? So you, you've got uh, a, a bunch of players there that are there, uh, I would imagine, um, for the chance to show their stuff off in front of scouts and to make a great impression on the world. Um, how do you uh, balance that uh, with the need to 
create um, a team environment where they're playing, <laughs> where they're playing not just for themselves, but also for each other. How does that happen? Well, let me tell you how it doesn't happen. Okay. And then I want the expert, and he is, uh, to expound on this. The one way you try that it usually doesn't happen is when you're struggling during the middle of the year and the manager decides to invoke the word championship in a speech down the right field line with his team, <laughs> okay, such that you're wondering if perhaps uh, he has now lost his faculties and needs to be relieved of his command. Uh, and you're starting to wonder if perhaps he didn't get into some kind of accident and has a <laughs> a brain injury, uh, which is what our manager decided to do last year. And he threw down the gauntlet of championship. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell you something. When it happened, I really thought I was hearing things because this guy, <laughs> he he really, because you could tell he was a little hot. You know, it's, it's there's a lot of pressure. It, it, it's great, but there's a lot of pressure. Um, and I could tell he was a little hot. And I just stood there and he started talking about championship out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, did he just say, he said championship. He really did. But, but in thinking back, it was maybe accidental and maybe on purpose. It was a stroke of genius because he said, frig this. I'm setting the bar high. Whoever wants to step over that bar is welcome to come along for the ride. If you're not, we'll get somebody to replace you. You remember that day? Absolutely. Oh my God. Yeah. I think, I mean, here's the biggest thing with the, and I think when I said that, I was, I had a lot of medical problems. Right? I had a foot problem. I had a stomach problem. There was a, there was a whole lot going on. I, who knows? But, I mean, you know this too. I mean, th th these kids are so talented, and they're Ugh. playing for millions and millions of dollars. Right. right. The stakes are the really summer. high. Yeah. Yeah. The stakes are extremely high for yep. them. Yep. But you know, eventually, you know, there's going to be scouts that are in there that the scouts that really care about winning, that that want to see the the winning side of it, and you know, we they already know how talented you are. You know, eventually, it's got to be about team baseball. It's got to be about winning. This is why we're playing the game. Yes, you're going to be a millionaire. Some of these kids. But eventually, when you get into these systems, I mean, it, it does, there has to be that aspect of winning baseball games and winning championships. This is why we do this. And I think my goal was to, to make that message and get these kids to start playing for, and I've said this a lot of times, for reasons other than themselves, um, playing for, you know, the coaching staff and playing for the team and playing for the town of Brewster. And the more that they did that, the better they became. And that's something that I just don't think they see in the beginning of the year because all they see is the pressure of dollar signs. Yeah, and I also think that that speech took a lot of the pressure off of them because I think if kids realize quicker that they don't have to hit a home run every time up, throw the ball 150 miles an hour, throw the ball 95 miles, they've been so indoctrinated into the silliness of measurables that if they just kind of blend in, that they will stand out. If you try to stand out, it's really hard, you know, to to make yourself stand out on a baseball field with the best players in the world. It's easy with terrible players to stand out, but you're out there with the best players in the world. You're going to look bad. Everybody is going to be humbled. So if you kind of blend in and be a part of the team and play great team baseball, it's then that perhaps you're going to stand out even more because somebody's going to notice that you're the guy who smelled a hit on that, you know, 22 hopper and ran through first base and got a base hit and then stole second base and then got the third on a pass. You know, th those are the things that really do show. I think that's what scouts really do notice about a guy because everybody's so good. Two players come to mind um, that I've had over the past three years. Um, Nick Senzel, 
first overall college player drafted in the in the 2017 draft or 16 draft. Um, you know, comes into Brewster, has a good year, um, made adjustments, wanted to get better. He had all the intangibles of being a great baseball player. Watching this kid go from first to third, home to second on base hits, um, steal bases. And he was banged up. He was hurt every day. He had an excuse to leave the Cape. Um, he had the trainer wanted him to go home, but he stuck it out. He stuck it out. He played through adversity. He played through pain right up until the last game of the, when we were in the playoffs where he physically couldn't hold a bat anymore because he was so hurt. And I really do believe that that kid got drafted in the number one overall spot, not just because of talent, because of what he did in the Cape Cod League. And the second is you and I both know, um, was, was Logan. Yeah. Warmoth. Where Logan Warmoth, uh, shortstop at North Carolina, kind of the same thing. He came into Cape. He was really talented. Not, uh, in my opinion, I didn't think he was a first round draft choice. You know, when I, when I had the first couple of weeks that we saw him, right. but he gets hurt, he gets hurt. He leaves the Cape to go back to North Carolina to spend yeah. time with his trainer. And we all sat in the dugout and said, he's done. He's not coming back. And sure as shit, a week later, he comes back and he plays some more games through some more pain. And I think that the reason he was drafted in the first round was because of, of that kind of toughness and wanting to win and wanting to compete. And I think that's a, a quality that a lot of these kids need to learn. I, I agree. I agree. I think that's a quality that's almost weaned out of them by focusing so much on measurables, on making it an arcade game. How hard do you throw? How fast do you run? How far do you hit the ball? When in fact... The reality is when it comes to a baseball game, you may not have to do any of those things in order for us to win. Because if we win, we don't care what the measurables are. Um, and you're yeah. right. I think I, I agree. Senzel, I, I wasn't there for Senzel, but I heard all the stories. And Logan absolutely was, you know, patient zero when it comes to that kind of thing, that kind of character hanging in there, making the team meant something to him. Uh, and I believe, yeah. too, that 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 made him a lot of money. I really do because it's not only, you know, everybody at that level is really good. It's not only about your ability and scouts want to know more about your makeup than they do about your ability. Uh, we are, and, and this is going to happen this year as well. You know, every year around this time, I get 30 phone calls from every scout in the country yep. asking about my players last year. Yep. And the two big guys that they're talking about is, you know, I'm going to use outfielder A and outfielder B for the Brewster Whitecaps. Mm-hmm. Both of them had the opportunity to go to Team USA, and they both did really good at Team USA, but only one, one of them came, came back. back to the Cape. That's right. After, That's right. after Team USA, and the other said, nah, I don't need the Cape. And I guarantee you I've made that. You know, if they had told me, you know, pick one or the other, I'd pick outfielder B because he came back to the Cape. So would I. And and I know exactly the two players you're talking about. But I'm going to say this is a cautionary tale to anyone who has any kind of aspirations in this game. The game of baseball is a really small world. And let me tell you something about good coaches, guys like Chev and the few guys that I know that are really good. They never lie on behalf of players. If you're a dog, when the Toronto Blue Jays have lunch, when I had lunch with the Toronto Blue Jays and they asked me about you, I'm saying you're he's a dog. I am not in any way. I'm not going to give up my credibility for your draft slot. If you if you exhibited to me that you're the kind of guy I don't want to be around, I'm conveying that to anybody who mentions your name because all we really have is our credibility. If I say to a scout, hey, the guy's a great guy, and you wind up t- taking the first-round pick and wasting it on this guy, and he winds up being a bad guy, that's going to reflect negatively on me. So people in this game, we tell the truth about you. So be careful about how you act because we notice, and when somebody asks us, we usually don't cover for you. Exactly. 100% correct. So, um, 
Jamie Shifchick, uh, we're going to let you go, Skip. Um, of course, as usual, fabulous. You're great. Um, uh, we, you know, we can't. Uh, and there it is, baby. We can't uh, wish you well enough. Uh, nobody's better than you. Best in the business. Jamie Shevchek with us here on the conversation. Skip, go get him. Bring home a championship, my friend. Thanks, Tommy. We'll see you guys. All right. See you soon you. enough, pal, in the cape. Yep. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Well, that's going to be a wrap. Andy, what'd you think? Well, sounds like a great guy. Uh, and, and um, uh, man, Ed, what, a, what, a, what a great story. Um, and I, it's I, I part of baseball that I think um, a lot of casual baseball fans might not know about a sort of a level of baseball that's not as visible as some others. Um, but you see uh, the quality of, um, you know, coach, quality leader that you that you could find uh, anywhere. And uh, man, really cool stuff. Well, we're going to uh, we're going to wrap this up. Andy and I are going to go have a cup of coffee and discuss uh, Andy's next book. We're going to collaborate on a book. There's too much information here that's not being told. And I think it would make uh, for great reading. Um, before we leave you, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my own mom. Um, I would uh, I do anything for just one more time to be able to hold my mom's hand one more kiss on the cheek and one more time to hear her say you know what tom you're a good guy that's what my mom told me what a gift to get from a woman of great wisdom grace dignity and above all else humility i love you mom we will uh we'll see you again happy mother's day